Welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast, episode 16, the one that got away. This one is a little later than usual because I got swamped this week, but here it is nevertheless, halfway through Friday, ready for the weekend, in Under the Wire. My guest today is Vic Martis, who is going to talk to me about the history of vodka. What else would you expect from a weekend edition? But first, I want to talk about everyone's favorite topic, spending, deficits, the debt, and in particular about how utterly depressing it is that Republicans talk such a good game on spending deficits, and the debt, but never actually seem to do anything about them. Now, earlier this week, I read a piece in NBC about the GOP's plans for the budget. And the quotes in it, which come from elected Republicans, not from members of the media, are honestly somewhat unbelievable. Now, of course, the piece is full of all of the editorializing that you'd expect. But the quotes, which are real, speak for themselves. And sadly, those quotes are typical of where the party is at the moment. So here's NBC. Republicans, newly empowered with a House majority are demanding spending cuts as a price for lifting the debt ceiling and averting a catastrophic default on U.S. debt. Now, just as an aside, I don't think there is anything wrong with Congress addressing spending when lifting the debt ceiling. I, of course, understand that the debt ceiling is being lifted to accommodate the consequences of previous spending. But it seems entirely natural to me to review spending when talking about spending. If I racked up massive credit card bills, I would of course have to pay them, or if I couldn't pay them, to raise my credit limit. But it wouldn't be remotely out of line for me to think simultaneously about how I might avoid racking up massive credit card bills in the future. Quite often, when people resist that idea, the idea of linking debt limit increases to cuts or reforms, they're really pretending that they're alarmed by the prospect of a default, which they should be, it would be catastrophic, when really they want to avoid talking at all about how we got here in the first place. Anyhow, NBC continues, but they, that's the Republicans, they are struggling to identify what to cut, complicating Speaker Kevin McCarthy's task of passing a bill with his narrow majority. There's got to be cuts in spending. That has to happen, 
that Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, an ally of McCarthy, Republican of California, and the far right. But she declined to get specific when she was asked what should be cut. I haven't really formulated an exact list, she said. That, by the way, could be put on the Republican Party's headstone. I haven't really formulated an exact list. Here's more. Representative Anna Paulina Luna, Republican of Florida, another of the 20 initial McCarthy holdouts, said a debt limit bill should have an amendment to balance the budget over 10 years to win her vote. Luna said she wants to do it without tax increases, or Social Security, or Medicare cuts. Where there's a will, there's a way, she said. But there's not, is there? Where there's a will, there's a way is a fine notion in general. But it's not a concept you can apply to accounting when you don't actually have a will. And the Republicans don't have the will to address our budget problems. Here's Kevin McCarthy on this topic from The Hill. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican California, said on Thursday that House Republicans will not target Medicare or Social Security in their negotiations over the debt ceiling. We won't touch Medicare or Social Security, he told Donald Trump Jr. in an interview in the Speaker's office for Trump's Triggered podcast. And further down in that piece, we hear from Donald Trump Sr., who's running for president. Under no circumstances should Republicans vote to cut a single penny from Medicare or Social Security to help pay for Joe Biden's reckless spending spree. While we absolutely need to stop Biden's out-of-control spending, the pain should be borne by Washington bureaucrats, not by hard-working American families and American seniors, he added. Look, I dislike the progressive approach to the federal budget as much as anyone else. I find it infuriating that progressives continue to tell the public that Social Security and Medicare are insurance programs from which people only take what they pay in. And that's not even close to being true. I find it infuriating that progressives pretend that defense is the root of the problem when, despite being the reason that we have a federal government in the first place, defense as a share of the overall budget has dropped and dropped and dropped over time and been replaced by social programs, and in particular, by entitlements. And most recently, I found it infuriating to see the rise of lunacy, such as modern monetary theory, which holds in effect that math and reality are optional, and that the federal government can spend as much as it wants at any given point with no discernible downsides, But Republicans are not behaving that much better, are they? In fact, from one perspective, they're behaving much worse. Because unlike progressives, who make no great secret of their desire to load up more and more spending irrespective of the consequences, 
Republicans talk a big game about cutting spending, but they never actually do it. Like Sometimes they stop new spending programs, and I'm grateful for that. I think that really does matter. But they don't ever cut anything, and if they do, they reverse course pretty quickly. If you're going to make a big deal out of the need for restraint, if, like Paulina Luna, you're going to call for a balanced budget, or like Donald Trump, you're going to complain about Joe Biden's reckless spending spree and Biden's out-of-control spending, you really have to know how you're going to fix it. A balanced budget requires sacrifices. You can suggest raising taxes, enough to cover the current shortfall. Or you can suggest cutting spending enough to ensure that current tax revenues are sufficient to pay our obligations. Or you can combine the two. But those are your choices. That's it. There is no magical third way. And yeah, I understand that Social Security and Medicare cuts are unpopular. I really do. But now, and going forward, those two programs are the key drivers of our annual deficits, and thereby of our federal debt. Donald Trump says that the pain of stopping Biden's out-of-control spending should be borne by Washington bureaucrats. That's nonsense. There is no cut to the bureaucracy that one could make that could come close to balancing the budget, let alone paying off the debt. However you do it, it's going to involve cuts. Look at the numbers. This year, the federal government is projected to spend $5.9 trillion. And it's projected to bring in around $4.9 trillion. Which means that this year, all things being equal, we will have a shortfall of about a trillion dollars. Trillion with a T. Now, what are we spending that on? We're spending $442 billion on interest on the debt. You can't cut that. We owe that. We have to pay it. We're spending $1.3 trillion on Social Security. We're spending $1 trillion on Medicare. We're spending $600 billion on Medicaid and CHIP, a few other programs. And we're spending $1.1 trillion on other financial assistance. Now, if you add Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other welfare programs together, the bill comes to $3.7 trillion. If you add in the interest, you're looking at about $4.1 trillion on social programs and the interest on the debt combined, which is about 70% of the $5.9 trillion budget. And then there's the rest. There's defense, which is currently $795 billion. And then there's all other discretionary spending put together. 
education, agriculture, law enforcement, energy, transportation, etc. That's about a trillion dollars all in. Now this year, our shortfall will be around a trillion dollars. Which means that if we're to take the Republicans at face value when they say they want to balance the budget, not improve the budget, but balance it, which, by the way, wouldn't cut the debt, but would just stop adding to it, we must assume that they're prepared either to wipe out the entire federal government that isn't defense or entitlements, or to wipe out the defense budget completely and wipe out around 20% of the federal government that isn't defense or entitlements, or to do some combination of the two that would likely result in, say, a halving of the defense budget and the abolition or emasculation of a whole host of government departments. You can't do it by cutting waste. You can't do it by cutting bureaucrats. You have to cut actual things that people will notice, like aircraft carriers, or farm subsidies, or the Department of Education. Should we do some of that? Absolutely. In my view, most of the federal government is unconstitutional, and it should be abolished. Although I personally wouldn't prioritize defense. But Republicans are not going to do anything of the sort. The harsh truth is that if you want to balance the budget without tax increases, entitlements are where most of the money is going to come from. And this is going to get more true, not less true, as we go on. So the GOP's line is that we should balance the budget, not tomorrow, but over a decade. And that's fine. But it underscores the problem they have, because by the time that decade's up, the entitlements that they won't touch will represent an even larger portion of the federal budget than they currently do. And the problem they're delaying addressing will therefore be even harder to solve than it is now. I've said before how annoying I find it when pundits talk about the unpopularity of cuts to entitlements as if that political observation has an effect on the underlying math. And I'll reiterate that here. I get that entitlement cuts are unpopular. I get that unless it's part of some grand deal, the party that does entitlement cuts is going to be punished for it. But after a certain point, I also don't especially care because the alternative is insolvency and collapse. I will happily applaud the GOP for its willingness to accept that math is real. But if that willingness is not matched by a willingness to alter the numbers, then the Republican Party's role in the affair will be merely that of a, a sideline critic. And sideline critics are not that much more useful than the people whose behavior they're complaining about in the first place. 
My guest today is Vic Martis, Deputy Editor of the Washington Free Beacon and the co-host of the Getting Hammered podcast with Mary Catherine Ham, who was a guest on this podcast early on. But uh, today, Vic is not going to talk to me about politics or anything he might cover at the Beacon. He's going to talk to me about vodka. Now, a few years ago, Vic wrote a book titled... Well, titled Vodka, How a Colorless, Odorless, Flavorless Spirit Conquered America. And I thought that it would be interesting to ask Vic how indeed a colorless, odorless, flavorless spirit managed to conquer America. So Vic, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Hello, Charles, and thank you for having me on your show. It's my pleasure. So vodka is not native to America. In fact, it's Russian, I believe. In other words, it's associated with our great Cold War rivals, perhaps our current rivals too. It wasn't always an American drink. So before we get to vodka in America, it would be useful, I think, to know what Americans drank before vodka became this cultural phenomenon. What was the American equivalent in the pre-vodka era? Uh, initially, uh, in the United States and before the United States was actually a country, it was rum. Obviously, as you know, during that time in the 1600s, they had the triangle of trade and you would have the molasses and the slaves and the rum uh, all working together. And there were a lot of rum houses up and down the East Coast, particularly in New England. And that began to change in the 1800s with uh, suddenly you had people moving out West and they were no longer relying so much on you know giant barrels of rum, but rather uh, they would have to deal with wheat and rye, and they were decide they were uh, at that point deciding to turn that into uh, whiskey and rye. George Washington did, did it as well. It's easier to transport, and it's worth a lot more money your uh, wheat and rye in the form of a spirit that it is, you know, to bake bread. And so suddenly Americans were drinking a lot of whiskey and rye. Throughout the 1800s, uh, vodka did not really appear in earnest uh, in the United States until 1934. All right, so we have whiskey and rye, but now in 2023, vodka is the most popular hard liquor in the U.S. So who was the first person or company to introduce it into the U.S., you mentioned 1934. What uh, was that's that about? correct. Uh, that was that was Smirnoff. The original Smirnoff. Uh, he was a vodka distiller in Russia, and he got ran out during the revolution. And he had actually gone. Uh, I think it was to the Philadelphia Expo, which might it was in the late 1800s, and he brought some of his vodka wares, and it won some sort of medals. But you know that was more of a curiosity. Also at that same expo, by the way. Uh, Ron Bacardi also won for rum uh, at the same time. He ended up in Paris and he was broke. You know, obviously in, in, in the Soviet Union, they took over his facilities. And so he was just living in the South of France with all these other Russian emigres. And then um, a man by the name of Kunit, who came over from the United States, a businessman, he happened to see an ad that uh, Smirnoff had placed in a local paper saying that I will sell you know, my formula and the name for a certain price, and it was really for nothing. So uh, Kunat came over to France, bought Smirnoff's name. It was with a V at that time, and then 
brought it back to the United States. And that's when uh, vodka first appeared in uh, 1934-35, just after Prohibition ended in Bethel, Connecticut, uh, of all places. So when people wonder, like, where did vodka in America uh, first come from? It was Connecticut. Okay, so that's how it gets manufactured. Where does it take off culturally? Where is it being sold? What are people mixing it with? Are they mixing it with anything? Oh, at that time, sales were pretty low. And in fact, the funny thing with Kunitz company is he had a couple other products that kept him going. Vodka, Smirnoff vodka was not one of the uh, things that was helping him stay afloat. It was dragging him down. The one thing that saved him was he also owned A1 steak sauce. And so that kept him going. And then finally, uh, you know, he'd go around to places and try to convince bartenders and bars and restaurants how they can use vodka and for what. It seems very obvious today because it's a neutral spirit, so it's going to be extremely versatile in mixing with pretty much any other beverage you want. You think about it, you can throw in vodka, you have yourself a party. So what happened was in the early 1940s, he was out in Los Angeles at the Cock and Bull Pub. He was talking to the owner and this is by this time, Kunit had already sold his company to a larger company. And that guy had come over to uh, Los Angeles to the Cock and Bull Pub. They had an idea. What do we do with all this leftover ginger beer that they had at the bar? And he said, well, why don't we throw some vodka in it and maybe crushed ice, lime. We could serve it in copper mugs. And that became the Moscow, Moscow Mule. That took off. And that is in the early to mid-1940s. And suddenly... Um, it was a very popular drink, for example, in Hollywood and among celebrities. And Smirnoff was very smart at that time to uh, capitalize and get movie stars to advertise uh, Moscow Mules, Woody Allen, uh, you, know, you name it. They were all they, they were all in on this. Uh, the joke was that actors liked drinking Moscow Mules or drinking vodka because they could drink during the day and nobody could tell that they had been drinking. Because it's odorless. It's odorless. And it's funny because the reverse is also true. Um, I spoke to a fellow who uh, worked at a very large law firm, and then he later on worked in the Reagan administration. And he had said when he worked at the law firm in the 1960s, this is during the Mad Men time, his bosses, his partners at the law firm said, when you go out and with your clients, make sure you're drinking bourbon or whiskey and not vodka this way, they can smell and they can tell that you're drunk and not just being stupid. <laughs> so they wanted them to know they'd had a... Yes, exactly. Because again, because it's odorless. Like, oh, this guy's an idiot. You know, he can't even write. But whereas if he has, you know, oh, I can smell it on his bath. Ah, he's had a couple drinks. That's okay. All right. Well, you mentioned two things there. And I wonder which was the more influential or whether they worked hand in hand. On the one hand, you essentially made the case that because vodka is so milquetoast because it can go with almost anything that it was useful in this situation with the the leftover ginger beer and that i assume as a result people started to recognize that they could put it in anything but you also mentioned marketing you know which of these was the more important means by which we got to where we are now well, I think early on, it was more of a cultural factor. One of the things I should mention also is when pro Prohibition ended, you're talking about years upon years of uh, Americans not drinking legally. And you have a whole new generation. Now, the older people, they were going to speakeasies and, 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 and you know, gin baths and things like that. But there was a whole new generation, 18 to 21-year-olds, 
who had no connection at all to booze. And they got into those bars into the uh, mid-1930s, very excited to drink. America lost a lot of its drinking culture in terms of recipes and cocktails that we only discovered you know, decades later. But at that time, this was lost. What are they going to drink? Vodka is one of those drinks. Uh, and again, and I, and I, don't, I also don't want to forget to mention engineers, for example, working with uh, Aramco in Saudi Arabia. You know, drinking was frowned upon or forbidden. And so a lot of these American engineers, they would sneak it into their orange juice and in the mornings and they didn't have spoons. They would apparently use their screwdrivers and that's how the screwdriver was born. So a lot of this was necessity. Once you get into the 1950s and 60s, it was definitely marketing and it got a huge lift, I would say, by James Bond. Ian Fleming. He talks about it in his book, although in uh, Casino Royale, that's not his go-to at, at, at that time. He drinks a, a different drink, but then he eventually gets the vodka martini. And that's a big game changer because until then, our understanding of a martini is really, it's a gin drink. It's what it is. Uh, he made it cool. Uh, Sean Connery and Dr. No made a Smirnoff Vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. You're doing the exact opposite, by the way, of everything to make a martini. You know, we, I like to stir mine so it's clear. I like gin because that's what a martini is. And he has vodka, shaken, not stirred. People love it. Obviously, uh, the James Bond movies were a big hit, and people want to be like James Bond. So that helps. So that by 1967, vodka had overtaken gin as the more popular clear spirit. And then by 1976, it became more popular than uh, whiskey. I suppose I'd never thought about that before, that prohibition, in a sense, provided a reset. Yes. Because you had all of these people who hadn't grown up with legal alcohol. Many states kept their rules even after the constitutional amendment was itself amended. And so there was an opportunity there for the manufacturers of alcoholic drinks to say, no, 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 don't go back to pre-prohibition. We have a new product. That's right. It was really good timing, particularly for Smirnoff. And that was really the dominant player in the vodka market for a very, very long time. And then there were other ones. Finlandia is an older one as well. In the uh, early 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s, Pepsi struck a deal with Stolichnaya in the Soviet Union. And the agreement was Stoli would handle distribution of Pepsi in the Soviet Union, and Pepsi would then handle the distribution of Stolichnaya into the United States. So that added, for the first time, really, a genuine Russian vodka. And people like the idea of, of, of that as well. But again, if even to this day, Smirnoff is no longer being distilled out of Bethel. It really comes from Plainfield, Illinois. And it's funny because, as you know, not to jump ahead here, but we've had all these boycotts or threats of boycotts of Russian products. And one of the things people are saying is don't drink Russian vodka. And you see them dumping Smirnoff down the drain. Well, I mean, you know, if you have something against the people of Illinois, you know, fine. But, uh, you know, it was a little bit misplaced. It's also really odd, isn't it, that we saw those protests now. But you just described James Bond at the height of the Cold War. Yeah ostentatiously drinking Russian vodka and Pepsi doing deals with the Soviet Union in the late 1970s. 
and Americans being fine with that. But now it's it's strange. It is. It is. There was actually one protest in in the fifties from bartenders in New York against the Moscow Mule because uh, again they actually thought you know this is this is some sort of communist ploy. And at, of course by then you know Smirnov was not coming from the Soviet Union, but they pushed against it. It was uh, it was it was long uh, soon after that it was forgotten. But it was weird. You know Americans like that sort of uh, you know. Being risky and, and and being a little bit edgy when they're when with it, with their drinks, it's very much like if you remember, absinthe was banned for a very long time in this country. But every now and then, you could go somewhere and they could really make you a genuine sazerac because they had the absinthe. They brought it over from fa- France, and there was all this excitement about it. And, and nobody really cares about absinthe as much these days. But it was that sort of forbidden fruit element to it. And then vodka, of course, then finally took off in the United States, really went crazy in the 1980s. And that was largely because of Absolute, but that was a Swedish company. Okay, so we get to the 1980s. What changes in the 1980s that leads to this explosion? Is it that there are more cocktails being invented that use it? Uh, Is it that uh, do men drink it more than women? How how do we get to to today? So first, in the 1970s, that's really what a lot of bartenders we'll call the dark ages for cocktails. <laughs> you know, you have, it was really more of a beer scene than anything else. And it was a backlash against the madmen of the 1960s. And, uh, you know, the hippie cultures, you don't see hippies drinking martinis. The 80s changed that, obviously, with the economy rebounding in the Reagan years. And all, everyone had this newfound money. You had, you know, the birth of the yuppie. And it was a perfect opportunity for this company called Absolute Vodka, which was from Sweden, to make a play for these people. And how they did it was through extremely trendy magazine ads. And it was all, it was a, the, the concept is very simple, which is, uh, uh, you and I remember this, people remember this from, they used to be all over, you know, you would plaster your college dorm room with absolute ads. Now that nobody reads anything in print anymore, I mean, it, it basically ended. But it's the shape of the bottle, uh, and it would resemble different things depending on where it was from. So it would be like absolute New York, and it would be the shape of Central Park, but in the shape of the bottle. So you had to figure out, you know, what they were, you know, what the play was. And it was absolutely brilliant. And TBWA was the ad company that did that. They're very, very, uh, very smart people over there. The one, by the way, there was an absolute DC ad. And all it was was uh, the bottle of absolute completely wrapped in red tape. So You're describing a multi-decade marketing campaign. Yes, now, do you think that this is likely to continue? I mean, we, we started off with a pre-vodka United States where rum and rye are the, the go-tos. Then we have a small vodka market. Then we have a big vodka market. Then we have an even bigger vodka market. And now it's the biggest player in the market. Is it going to stay there? Or is there a risk it will be supplanted by something else? There is a moment... I'd say about in the last 10 to 15 years where people thought whiskey and particularly rye are going to make a play in bourbon. So not so much scotch, but bourbon, which is very big, obviously, here in the United States. And it's going to make a play and it's going to give vodka a run for its money. And the other thing was when I was writing the book, Vodka, uh, people were talking even in the industry about this potential vodka bubble, like a housing bubble, and that eventually there's too many players and it's going to burst. And in fact, at the time, I think there was something like, there was a claim that there was about a thousand different brands. 
and there were countless flavors about, you know, based on something the government defines as flavorless, odorless, and colorless, it makes no sense other than really, really brilliant marketing. If you look at the numbers now for vodka, it's still the biggest player. More people drink it, you know, like between 150 and 200,000 gallons of vodka a year, right? And it's uh, somewhere between uh, two and five, uh, maybe it's about $5 billion in revenue uh, for these vodka companies. But if you look at vodka's climb, uh, uh, climb up, uh, thanks to uh, stats provided by the Distilled Spirits Council and other places, it's plateaued. So we've reached this point where I don't think you're going to bring in more enthusiastic vodka drinkers. It's a lot of people already. Now, what vodka has it to its advantage is there just happens, not only is it versatile, by the way, which I mentioned earlier, but there happens to be a lot of people, at least in this country, who don't like to take taste booze in their booze, right? They want to feel good. And it's funny, when you talk to people in the industry, they never want to say that, you know, we just want to get people drunk. No, they want yeah. to, you know, yeah, you know what they say? They always say, you know, you want to get people feeling that good vibe, that good feeling. That's how they, that's how they describe it. Oh, yes, the quote unquote good feeling. And so what they, you know, what they benefit from is there are a lot of people who like to drink, but they don't actually like to taste their liquor. And you notice this. I'm, I mean, I have friends, first time they come across bourbon, they say it tastes like gasoline, you know, or scotch. There's no way they want to have anything to do with that. And the Scotch people were very smart because, and the bourbon people, they started creating diluted versions of um, their brand, uh, such as uh, Jack Daniels, the honey flavor, Jim Beam, sort of these various lightly flavored bourbons. And that's their gateway, by the way. So it's funny, bourbon and whiskey and Scotch tastes too strong, so they dilute it and they lower the proof by flavoring it to bring in primarily women, right? That's the great white whale. Vodka, on the other hand, is playing the opposite game. We need to have more flavor in our booze. And this is why, for example, there was an absolute oak where you're taking vodka and you're letting it sit in barrels, you know, to give it kind of this yellowish tint to it and then serve it because, you know, and they're going in different directions, and it's very funny. So this this is an area that fascinates me. So you are a great foodie, and I know I I like food, but I don't have the analytical framework that you would have. I mean, you write very well about this in a way that I never could. Well, thank you. Nevertheless, I am aware of some differences in drinks. For example, I, I know how different wines taste. I can order wine. Uh, if I am ordering a gin and tonic, and the bartender says, "What would you like?" I can answer the question because gins do sometimes taste different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, obviously, with whiskey, you have profound differences. But if you asked me what sort of vodka would you like, <laughs> I would just guess. Um, yet, if I go to my local liquor store, there's a whole wall of vodka. Oh, yeah. Now, is there any real difference between this, or is this all marketing and competition and price differences? Well... If, uh, if you are so bold, uh, Charles, as to try, take two different brands of vodka and drink them, just a shot, sip it, don't down it, of those two different brands at room temperature, you will taste differences. And it, the difference might be bad and worse. Uh, so, I mean, I'm okay. just, let me caution you on there. But there are, there are differences. Vodka, the industry is at these, they, they're facing these cross purposes because on the one hand, the marketing 
there are certain terms that they call proof points. For example, in, in marketing, you'll see small batch. You throw small batch on any label, oh, person comes in, I got to get that. You know, I got, I got to get the thing that is, you know, based on only a couple of different blends together versus, you know, Johnny Walker, for example, as a scotch, you know, you have a master blender. They're taking, I don't know, 10, 20 different kinds of single malts until they have the perfect scotch. A small batch means you're only dealing with a handful, maybe three or four different blends, putting it together and coming up with that particular bourbon. But you see the word, it's a hot word. I got to have that. In the vodka industry, that word is distilled how many times? Triple distilled. It's a hot term. You know, oh my gosh, four times, five times distilled. I got to get that vodka. The more you distill a vodka, the less flavor it has. You're just approaching ethanol. At some point, you're just going to say, like, we're just going to sell the ethanol. And then you're going to be like, hey, this is amazing. <laughs> At the same time, in order to make it to distinguish it from the other brands, they actually have to add some flavoring to it at the end of the process. And there's a limit. If you exceed the limit, it becomes, uh, according to law, a flavored vodka. But if you can just get it just under the limit, you can be like, oh, ours is different. Now, here's the thing. The vodka people, they want the rest of us, who might just drink it casually or not at all, to, to treat it the way we would treat a fine scotch or a bourbon, which is I like to sip mine neat at room temperature, maybe a couple of drops of water, and just really, you know, ruminate on it and enjoy the nuances of that. They want you to do the same thing for vodka. Kettle One, David O. Russell, the director, he used to make, he made a few of these um, Kettle One commercials, and they're power players, you know, titans of industry, and they're celebrating some billion-dollar deal, and they're at this bar, and what are they drinking? Vodka on the rocks. Right? They're not drinking some fruity concoction. They're definitely not drinking cosmopolitans. They want you to treat that as uh, you know, something that cool and well-established and the elite, you know, can something that they appreciate. They want you to do do the same thing. We're not quite there yet. If you go to a bar and say, Can I have vodka on the rocks? People are going to think you have a problem. Yeah, absolutely. The only time that I've ever drunk vodka neat, I was in Russia on an overnight train and it was really cold and so was the vodka. I probably was the guy on that train with the least pronounced drinking problem. But my, my final question is, what is your favorite drink that contains vodka? What If you had to have just one drink oh my that contains gosh. vodka, what would it be? I, I guess it would be I guess it would be a Moscow mule. Uh, I really the have, original drink then. the original drink then uh, with ginger beer and crushed ice. I have to tell you uh, two things first. One is um, it's funny your anecdote about drinking uh, in uh, in Russia. Uh, you know, I spent some time when I did this book uh, vodka with Tito Beverage of Tito's Vodka, and this is ten years ago. Uh, he's now made hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. Back then, he was still kind of a startup. I mean, he was successful, but you know, now he's beyond, right? And he said that he would hang out with these Russian guys, and they would do these shots of just awful vodka that still contains things that should have been removed from the vodka, right? And 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 and, and they would and they would pound their chest and they would you know yell out these curses in Russian saying that basically I'm so tough that I can handle this poison, you know? And and his idea was it shouldn't be that way. And so it is funny that that's how it still is in Russia, which is a whole other world. The other thing I really want to uh, say is um the more and this is true, the more I uh wrote, researched and um 
read about vodka, the less I drank. And so there are some people who tend to think of myself as sort of Mr. Vodka, all things vodka. And this happened. I went to Chicago to a big uh, whiskey fest, um, you know, thing, and they had a, it was a conference and and an expo, if you will. And I was touting my book. And the guy touting my book basically made it sound like I loved vodka so much. But of course, this is a whiskey expo. I think one yeah. person <laughs> bought my book because nobody, you know, and I should have said, this book is about how did it take over the industry and then throw in like something to the effect of and how we can take it back. Yeah. Oh, I would have sold, you know, hundreds of copies there. So uh, what I really like, two things I really enjoy drinking now, maybe three. One is a gin martini, Plymouth up with olives, about a three to one ratio with a really good vermouth like Dolan. And the other thing is uh, uh, a rye Manhattan. That's, 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 that's me right now. I don't know. Wh- what about you? Yeah, I don't drink too much vodka, to be honest with you. I'm an English stereotype. I'm a gin drinker. Uh, my, my wife drinks vodka because she doesn't like gin. So she would be the, the person to, <laughs> to ask about this. And a lot of my friends drink a lot of vodka. But if I'm going to drink a clear alcohol, I'm, I would go for gin. Yes, uh, that, that's me. And I, I would say this, if they're looking for uh, friends of yours or listeners to the show, looking for what vodka to get, you know, it really is not a matter of price. Uh, because a lot of that is marketing. Uh, I've had Grey Goose, which is extremely expensive. I've had it in blind taste tests at room temperature. I did not like it. Tito's vodka, very affordable. It's great. There's a reason why he's successful, and it's not just the plain folksy marketing about it. Um, I remember what he told me, which was he, he liked to think of his vodka as filet mignon at pot roast prices. And so that's my recommendation is something along the lines of of Tito's or Kettle. Well, I'll tell you what, Vic, you've just made a bunch of my friends here in Florida very happy because Tito's is the go-to vodka <laughs> of pretty much every single one of my good. friends, including my wife. So if it has the Vic Marta seal of approval, that's good enough for me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Charles. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Vic Martis. Thank you to you, for listening thank you to all the kansas city chiefs fans who bought me drinks last week i'll see you next week